please turn to Luke 6. And while you're turning there, let me say that um, I, I see my surgeon on Tuesday. And I'm going to ask him if I can stand up to preach. When I was standing there, I thought, just stand up because you feel great. Then, but I'm trying to be an old dog who learns new tricks. One of which would be to do what I'm told and to ask of people who know better than I do. So in an unusual case of making a wise decision, I'm sitting down till my surgeon says stand up. Anyway, I share that because I'm really frustrated, but <laughs> and I felt it's probably good for me to share that with you. Be that as it may, onto something infinitely more important than my frustrations. It was at a a Desiring God conference in 1990. Sinclair Ferguson was speaking on the subject of the biblical basis of the doctrine of eternal punishment. And he told a story about one of the princesses in England. And he said this a number of years ago, certainly within the lifetime of all who are present in this room. One of the royal princesses of the realm... uh, was coming out of a cathedral service in England, and she spoke to the minister. And she said to the minister, Is it true, sir, that there is a place called hell? His response was, Madam, the scriptures say so. Christian people have always believed so. And the Church of England confesses so. The princess said in response, Then, in God's name, why do you not tell us so? The Lord Jesus, in this passage, tells us that it is so. That there is a hell. That there is a judgment. He tells us that there are those in this world who are destined for heaven. And there are those in this world who are in danger of hell. There are people in the world to whom Jesus says, woe to you. Look at our passage. Chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke and verses 24 to 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so there are people in the world to whom Jesus says, Woe to you. And when, uh, when Old Testament prophets said, Woe to you, <clears throat> what they meant is that you people are in terrible danger. They meant that there was something dreadful on the horizon. They meant that there was disaster ahead, and they meant that what the people they were speaking to were facing was some kind of horrific calamity that was irrevocably, it seems, coming their way. And this was going to be no run of bad luck. It wasn't going to be some instance of great misfortune. 
Now, the disaster that was coming was coming from the hand of God. And when they said, woe to you, they meant that God was on the move. They meant that God was going to act. They meant that God was going to bring disaster upon these people because of their sins. For instance, we read in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And by the way, if there ever was a generation of which that was true, it's our generation as well as that. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Is that not true of our generation? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And so Old Testament prophets would announce the judgment of God by saying, Woe to you. And now, from the lips of Jesus himself, we have the same ominous words. And he says, Woe to you. And people listening, well, they know the scriptures. And these words would echo. And they'd remember. And they'd understand. And they'd know that something dreadful is in the offing. And so Jesus comes now, and he now warns of imminent danger. And he warns of divine retribution, not human. And he warns that heaven is going to call you to account for your sins. And he tells them and warns them that God is riding on the clouds of judgment. And God is going to be pouring down wrath upon sinners Jesus is telling them that punishment awaits. And there are consequences for sin. And Jesus warns about hell. And he tells them, it is so. Pulls no punches. Speaks with clarity. And warns sinners. Oh, he he makes it clear that there are blessed people in the world. There are blessed people in this room. Most people here are blessed. And most people here, the word woe doesn't apply to you because you've been saved, you've been rescued, and you're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people like that in the world. They're called Christians. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are other people, perhaps most of the people in the world. Now, they're in danger. They're facing terrible danger. They're they're not Christians. And we need to think about that this morning. So I want to try and unpack this brief passage by asking three questions. The first is, who is in danger? And the second is, how, how bad is the danger? I mean, is this really a serious problem? And thirdly, can I avoid the danger? So who's in danger? And, and let me suggest that an important way of rephrasing that question is, am I in danger? Because this needs to be personal. Because this matter matters to you. Now, ask yourself then, when Jesus says, woe to you, 
Is he speaking to me? And if your answer is no, because I'm saved, well, you can go home on the clouds today. Is Jesus speaking to me when he says woe to you? If he is, you need to listen really carefully to this message. So let me try and tell you who he's speaking about. He's speaking to the self-righteous. You see verse 24. Woe to you who are rich. You've received your consolation. The only consolation you'll get is in this world. But you're the rich. You're the self-righteous. They're not poor in spirit. They're rich in spirit. The Lord is talking about a spiritual state in these verses, as he was in verses 20 to 22. He's talking about a spiritual state. They're not poor in spirit. They're rich in spirit. Uh, They think they're righteous. They've lived so well. They've done so much. They've been so good. And God really cannot help but accept them into his heaven. That's how people think of themselves. You know, they've done, they've done surveys of, of drivers, people who drive cars. They've done surveys, and, and they find that, that everybody thinks they're above average. They all do. And that's the way they think spiritually. I'm really good enough to go to heaven. If there is a God, and if he does have a heaven, there's no way on earth he can't accept me into his heaven. I'm that good. I've done bad things. I'm not perfect. But my good things far outweigh my bad things. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. You think you're so spiritual. He's talking to the self-righteous. He's talking to the self-satisfied. Now, when you've eaten all the food that you want this afternoon, you sit back and you say, I'm satisfied. And they were like that spiritually. That's what many people are like spiritually. They're quite satisfied spiritually. They're not hungering after God. They're not hungering after some righteousness that they know they need but they don't have. Well, they feel they're quite righteous. They're quite satisfied. I'm not desperate for the bread of life, they say. I'm quite happy the way I am. I'm quite satisfied with my condition I'm quite satisfied with my spiritual state. All is well with me. Over the years, I've tried to say to some people, let me tell you about Jesus. They say, well, I have my own religion, thank you very much. So you have your own religion, do you? You've created your own God, have you? And that's enough for you, is it? That's all right, is it? You're quite satisfied with this little God you've created with your own imagination. They're self-satisfied, aren't they? Jesus says, woe to you. You think you're okay, but you're not. He's talking to the the self-contented. You see verse 25. He says, woe to you who are full, now you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, now you shall mourn and weep. They're self-satisfied, and then they're also self-contented. They're not only satisfied with their spiritual state, they're quite happy about it. They're quite happy with it, and they're laughing about it, and they're laughing all the way to hell. Some years ago, there was a man who wrote a book about North Americans and their entertainment industry. 
And the book was entitled um, Amusing Ourselves to Death. That's what, that's what North Americans do. They amuse themselves to death. They're just having a good time. That's how they drift through life. They're, they're having a good time. You give your life over to fun and to music and to entertainment and to sports and you just enjoy yourself. Billy Joel, who was a singer who is pretty much retired now, and, oh, he was in his heyday when I was younger. He had a song in which he said, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, because the sinners are much more fun. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. Laughing is way to hell. And Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you. And then the self-important. Well, because in verse 25, everybody liked and spoke well of the false prophets. And the reason they did is because the false prophets told them what they wanted to hear. And we're surrounded by false prophets, especially in North America. People like Oprah Winfrey just spouting her bizarre philosophies that people lap up. Or Joel Osteen, who spouts his religious brand of ludicrous philosophies. Heresy. And passing it off as Christianity. False prophets. And people love it. And they crowd out the venue. And they drink in the nonsense. And they buy his books and they watch his shows. Jesus says, woe to people like you. Woe to people like you. Who are the popular ones? Well, people like that. The other popular ones are the singers and the, the athletes and the musicians and the comedians and the self-styled experts. The people who are popular, and, you know, they're popular because they're popular. Because, I mean, like, what exactly does a Kardashian do? Like, what have, what have they contributed to life beyond just being there? I, I don't know. I don't know. Why do I even know the name? Don't understand that. But they're popular. Jesus says, woe to you people. When wicked people think well of you and love you and put you up on a pedestal, watch out. And Jesus says to people like this, woe to you. He means there's danger ahead. And what ties all these people together is the fact that they're not Christians. You see, you could describe them in any number of ways, but what's true of all of them is that God is in none of their thoughts. That's what Psalm 10 says. God is in none of their thoughts. They live their lives without any reference to Him. It may be that they have some kind of academic and intellectual acknowledgement that there is a God. Yeah, I believe in God. But they don't live like they believe in God. In fact, they live like there's no God at all. 
and they live without any reference to the true and the living God, and they go their way, and they speak their own thoughts, and they live their life in exactly the way they want and don't care one whit for what God says. And Jesus says, woe to you. So these people are in danger, you see. Who's in danger? People like this. Everybody who's not a Christian. Anybody who's not yet believed in Christ. Anybody in this room who's not yet believed in Christ. You're in great danger. Anybody who's listening to this message and you've not believed in Christ, you're in great danger. This refers to you. And think not about someone else now, but think about this. If you're not a Christian, what Jesus says here has reference to you. And the danger he warns about is danger you face. And judgment that he prophesies is judgment that will come upon you. It was late at night, and it was on a road in England, true story, the foggy night in England, which apparently happens a lot. There's a multi-car pileup, and a police officer heads back down the road to warn oncoming traffic. But it's foggy, and they... They don't see him until it's too late. And so, in desperation, he grabs pylons and starts throwing them at oncoming vehicles to somehow, somehow warn them about what lies ahead. So, my question to you is, is God, in a sense, throwing pylons at you this morning or whenever you're listening to this to warn you about the danger that's coming? Woe to you, he says. Woe to you. Stop being so complacent. Stop pushing it off into the future, this decision to follow Christ. Stop delaying. Stop procrastinating. There's danger. It's looming. Do something. Come to Christ. Don't play around with God. Don't make light of the Lord. And don't risk your soul. Well, you say, it's not that bad. So how bad is the danger? How bad is it? How serious is this situation you find yourself in today if you're not a Christian? Well, it's serious enough that Jesus wept over people like you. That's how serious it is. The Lord Jesus, the Son of the living God, the unique God-man, weeps over people like you. That's how concerned he is. That's how troubled he is. That's how how much he cares. Just, uh, Just turn to Luke chapter 19 for a moment. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Luke 19, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus is talking specifically about Jerusalem and he's warning them. He's saying, if only you'd listen. If only you'd know the danger. If only you would do something about it and run to the Lord and come to me that I might save you. As a hen gathers her chicks, I would have gathered you around. If only you'd come. I'm warning you, it's going to become dreadful. If only, and he weeps over them. And Jerusalem was ultimately leveled and the temple was destroyed. But the danger is even worse for you if you're not a Christian, you see. And Jesus weeps. That's how serious this is. Well, let me give you a, let me give you a brief glimpse of how serious this danger is. Honestly, I can only give you a brief glimpse because I have severe limitations and I can only give you a brief glimpse because that's all I can take. That's all you can take. You can only gaze into the abyss for so long before it devastates you. You can only think about hell for so long before it destroys you. It's just, it's just horrific. So let me give you then just a brief glimpse. And let me say first of all that judgment is punishment. The judgment that's coming. The, what Jesus is warning us about, it's judgment that is punishment. For decades, our, our prison system has tried desperately to be a process that rehabilitates. I suppose it's a good thing to try, but it fails. It can't rehabilitate. The judgment that's coming is not designed to rehabilitate. It's punishment. Hell, writes Wayne Grudem, is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. There's no purgatory that is designed to rehabilitate and get you ready to go to heaven. It's kind of like the dressing room and, and it pretties you up with a little bit of suffering to get you ready for heaven. They made that up. It's not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Hell is not about rehabilitation. It's about punishment. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 Hell is payment. It's the wages that you've earned. You live a life outside of Christ and you earn punishment. And 2 Thessalonians 1 says, God will repay. He'll give you what you are owed. He'll give you what you've earned because of your sin and you've earned punishment, and that's what happens in hell. Hell is divine vengeance. It's not us taking vengeance. No, no. It's, it's infinitely worse than that. It's God. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. And so he punishes. And hell then is the outpouring of what Revelation 19 says is the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. That's what hell is. It's not rehabilitation. It's not, I'm going to get better through this. It is eternal punishment. So yes, 
when Jesus says, woe to you, this is desperately serious. Judgment is rejection. It's God rejecting those who have rejected him. You've, you've walked through your whole life and you've said, I want nothing to do with God. You've turned your back on it. You've walked your way. You've heard the messages and you've said, well, I'm not interested. Well, then God rejects you at the end. And so the Bible says that Jesus will say one day, depart from me. I never knew you. From the lips of Jesus, from the mouth of the Son of God, you will hear, get away from me. I don't know you. You imagine. Those are the most awful words anyone could ever conceivably hear. When Jesus himself says, depart from me. Get away from me. It's rejection. The Bible says that they will be cut off. The Bible says they will be sent to what Jesus calls the outer darkness. Unbelievers will, says Paul, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's rejection. It's you being distanced from the only good God. Cut off from the light and cut off from every vestige of goodness. And then the judgment is suffering. Nobody talked about hell as much as Jesus. The word Gehenna, which is translated hell, is is found more on the lips of Jesus than anyone else. And nobody used the kind of horrific imagery as much as Jesus. It's Jesus that said that the judgment is out of darkness. We don't like the darkness. Even adults, there's something frightening about darkness and about deep darkness. The nighttime is foreboding. It's It's the outer darkness, Jesus says. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And where will you be? You'll be in the outer darkness. So severely and drastically and dreadfully cut off from God. It's a place, says Jesus, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wailing. Wailing is screaming. I have heard people screaming. That's desperate. That's a place, says Jesus, of weeping and wailing and the gnashing of teeth where you grind your teeth so much because it's such agonizing experiences that you're having to endure. Jesus says, well, that's what it's like there. The worm doesn't die and the fire's not quenched and the rich man of Luke 16 that we read about who wants a drop of water To cool his tongue, he hasn't received a drop of water yet and never will. Uh, The judgment is, is suffering. And then the judgment is forever. Jesus himself says, some will, they will go to everlasting 
life, and the others will go to everlasting punishment. And the same word, same word everlasting is used of the duration of heaven as is used of the duration of hell. And as long as you Christians will be happy in heaven, they will suffer in hell. And then the judgment is certain. You'll notice, I think, in the passage that Jesus says, you shall be hungry. You shall mourn and weep. This is not warning about the way things might... It might turn out badly for you. It might not turn out well. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is what's going to happen. This is absolutely certain. You shall. So listen... If you're not a Christian here, and if you're not a Christian and you're listening, never imagine that you're safe. Don't tell yourself that you're safe. Don't let anyone tell you that you're safe. There are lots of liars in this world. There are lots of people who will tell you lies. They'll they'll say peace, peace when there's no peace. Don't listen to them. They'll be an accomplice in a crime which will send you to hell. Don't tell yourself you're safe when you're not. You know, the people of, uh, the people of Hiroshima, they, they looked up in the sky. They saw a, a weather plane, a plane that was just doing some reconnaissance and investigating the weather. And, and they thought it was an attack and the air raid sirens w- uh, rang and, and they went to the shelters and then the plane was gone and everybody thought it was fine that early morning of August 6, 1945 and, and they came out and they started to go about their day and by 8.15 they were all dead pretty much because that's when the bomb was dropped. They thought they were okay and it was a lovely day and then they were dead. They thought they were safe, but they were not. Don't think you're safe when you're not. This danger is very real, and it is quite awful. It brings us, and it has to bring us to the third question. Can I avoid this danger? Can I avoid this danger? If I didn't have this third point, I wouldn't have given you the first two. Because, you know, what point is there then? Then you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and go to hell. So make the best of it. But no, we we have fantastic news for you. We have glorious news for you. Let me tell you about a man named John Thorpe. Just read about him a little while ago. He was part of a, a club. You know, some people go to... 4-H club and all the rest. This guy was part of a group called the Hellfire Club. So what he did is he, he went to hear George Whitfield, great preacher, 18th century awakening. He goes to hear Whitfield and he listens very carefully because he's trying to imitate. He wants to understand his nuances and his tones and all so that he could mimic George Whitfield. So he listens very carefully and he learns about Whitfield and he goes back to his to the Hellfire Club, because this is the kind of thing they do. So this particular time, this is his opportunity to step up and do the thing that they do at Hellfire Club. And so he steps up, 
And today he's going to imitate George Whitfield. And make fun of Whitfield because, you know, all these Christians are crazy. So he opens his Bible and he just turns and randomly he comes across, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He says, now that's a good text. That'll preach that text. That'll preach well. And so let me do my Whitfield imitation. And he starts to preach on, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he gets into his message and he starts to preach. And as he's preaching, he forgets to imitate Whitfield because he's getting caught up in the message. And he's beginning to understand, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. And he begins to preach. And he is saved under his own ministry. He's no longer imitating Whitfield uh, to make fun of him and to mock him. In a sense, he's imitating the preaching of the gospel and he's converted. And his life is transformed and he gets to know John Wesley and he becomes a preacher of the gospel and the Lord uses him in wonderful ways. He becomes quite a notable fellow. So yes, There is a way to avoid the judgment. There is a way to be rescued. Dr. J.I. Packer says the entire New Testament is overshadowed by a certainty of a coming day of universal judgment. And the problem then arises, how may we sinners get right with God while there is yet time? That's the question. And the marvelous thing is that the Jesus, whose words we are reading here, is the Jesus who not only pronounces woes, but provides a way to escape from the woes. Because he's already talked about the people who are blessed. There are people who are blessed. You see, the Lord Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. The doctrine of hell is what helps to make sense of the coming of Christ and of the cross of Christ. Because you see, hell is part of the background for his coming. Why is he here? Why is he even here talking like this? Well, he's come in order that he might deliver us from the wrath to come. He's come in order that he might save his people from their sins. If there's no hell, he doesn't come. But he's come because there is a hell to be shunned. There's a, there's a hell from which to rescue people. That's why he's here. Hell is part of the background of his coming. Hell is part of the burden of his teaching. It's one of the things that Jesus teaches. It's one of the things that he tells us about. It's one of the things that he warns us about. It's part of the things that he preaches. And then thirdly, hell is at the heart of the blessing of the cross. It's part of the background to his coming. It's part of the burden of his teaching. And it's at the heart of the blessing of the cross. Because what happens at the cross? Well, all the things he's warning them about and warning you about, that's what happens at the cross. He experiences hell for those who will believe in his name. He's forsaken of God. He's cut off. Remember I said that hell is being cut off. It's being cast out. That's what happened to him. It's being forsaken. That's what happened to him. 
Paul says you're punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of God. We sing, the Father turned his face away. He's experiencing judgment. He's tasting the wrath of God. He's drinking the cup to its dregs. He's experiencing hell for you. That's why we're safe. That's why we're blessed. Because he took it for us. He stood there and he hung there and he took it. You eliminate hell while you destroy the cross. So yes, the danger can be avoided. Because when you believe in Christ, you're delivered. You're delivered from the wrath to come. When you trust the Lord Jesus, woe to you no longer applies. With joy shall I lift up my head, we sing. Bold shall I stand in that great day. I'm not worried about the judgment day anymore. It's not a concern to me anymore when it comes to my own destiny. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved from these I am, from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. So with joy shall I lift up my head on that day, because I'm safe, because of the cross, because of Jesus. So yes, the danger can be avoided. I can escape that. I can be freed from that. I can be delivered from that when I believe in Christ. Well, Three quick implications. The first is urgency. Urgency. See now, if you're not a Christian, this is an urgent matter. There's nothing now more important in your life than that you be rescued, than that you be safe, and that you believe in Jesus so that you don't have to face this, so that you get to the point where woe to you is no longer applicable to you. There's nothing more important in your life. You say, well, what about this? What about that? What about my job? What about this? There's nothing more important than this at all. Robert Murray McShane wrote, he said, as I was walking in the fields, a thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that every one of my flock must be in heaven or in hell. Is it? There's not a person here who is exempt from that. Every single one of us here, you're either going to be in heaven or you're going to be in hell. What about you? It's heaven or hell. That's it. It's just those two. There's no one here exempt. No one here can say, well, you know, I'm going with the third option. You can say, well, I just think, I just think, you know, when you die, that's it. Well, God doesn't care what you think. Doesn't care at all. There's two destinies. It's heaven or hell. And it's important to decide today that you want to be rescued because there's an urgency here. You die without Christ, you go straight to hell. You know, the story told, made-up story, obviously. There's three, three apprentice demons, you know, they're talking. The devil says to them, what are you going to do today? Well, the first one says, I'm going to talk to unbelievers. I'm going to tell them um, that there's no God. 
And the devil says, well, that's going to be tough because all of creation kind of screams that there is a God. Oh. The second one says, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to tell them that there is no judgment. The devil says, well, part of the difficulty with that is that everything within them says that there is a judgment because like Paul says in Romans 2, and the devil reads the Bible, by the way, so he knows about Romans 2, and he knows that, that Romans 2 says, well, people know in their heart they just have a sense that there needs to be justice. We have an innate sense that you know, justice needs to be done. And so they have a sense. They have a conscience. Even when it's seared, it's still there. So that's going to be tough, he says. Well, the third young demon says, I'm going to tell them that there's no hurry. Oh, that's fine. What the preacher said is fine. And what the Bible says is fine. It's all true. And, you know, one day... You should get around to doing something about it. And then before you know it, God comes to you and he says, tonight your soul is required of you. You know, sometimes children die as well. So I'm saying to you that there's an urgency here. And you need to get this settled right away. And you need to come to Christ right away. The day of salvation is now. The day of salvation is today. It's not tomorrow. Because you might not, you see, you might not have a tomorrow. The day of salvation is today. It's right now. It's before the service is over. It's before I say another word. It's before you lay your head on the pillow tonight. You need to get right with God. It's urgent. And are you saved? Well, if you're saved, that's wonderful. And maybe, maybe, Maybe you've been saved just recently. Isn't that wonderful? You're safe. You're safe. It's okay. All is well with your soul. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. You know, um, Ian Murray wrote two wonderful volumes on Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And he went to visit Dr. Lloyd-Jones in like 1980-81. And by that time, Dr. Lloyd-Jones' ministry was over. He was going to die soon. And Murray said to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he said, um, he says, how hard is it that, you know, your ministry now is so curtailed? You've had such a wide and varied ministry. Is it hard for you that... Uh... And Lloyd-Jones responded by saying, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He says, I am perfectly content. You see, if you're safe, that's all that matters. If you're in Jesus, that's all that counts. If you know the Lord and you're forgiven and you're destined for glory, it's well with your soul. That's urgent. The second implication is witness. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and, not, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. So, if you know non-Christians, pray for them and warn them. However you do it, you know, some people are really good at witnessing. 
Some of us are not. I get that. I know that. I experience that. I feel that myself. It's a struggle. But I'm saying to you, this really matters. The second point was that this is really dangerous for them. And so the implication is that we need to do, however we do it, we need to get it. We need to get the message to them. However you do it, they need to find out and they need to be warned. Just be creative. Find some way. I can't do this. I can't do that. I I get that. But somehow, they need to be warned. Somehow, they need to know, woe to you. And somehow, they need to know that blessedness can be their state if they come to Jesus. They need to know that. Give them a tract. You know, a lot of times we can't articulate things. A lot of times we're scared silly. So just somehow get them a tract, get them something. Find somebody and say, now, please, you tell them, just do it for me, please. Just do whatever you have to do to warn them. Witness. Paul said to me, Paul said, to, Paul said, we read earlier, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 9, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. So, <laughs> that's a solemn thing, isn't it? Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel to these people. Woe is me if I don't somehow get the message to them. That's my job. And lastly, preaching. We want to pray that God will raise up preachers. We've been talking about this at prayer meeting. We need to be praying that God will raise up preachers who will preach the gospel and warn sinners and invite sinners and do so with boldness and with tenderness. We want to pray that God will raise up bold preachers. Preachers like Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was... um, in the, the young United States, and he was a preacher of the gospel, and, and he was about to preach one evening, and he was told um, that President Andrew Jackson was going to be in the service. And they said to him, please, don't, don't say anything untoward. You know, don't, don't say stuff that's kind of going to make the rest of us feel awkward and embarrassed and just... So he gets up and he says this. He says, um, I'm told that President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Then he says, let me say this to you. If Andrew Jackson doesn't repent, he'll go straight to hell. So later, apparently, Jackson said to him, if I, had, uh, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. <laughs> that sounds like Jackson. We need bold. We need bold preachers. We need bold preachers. Not spineless wimps. Pray for God to raise up such, but bold, but not nasty, and not unpleasant, and not harsh. 
men of tenderness and tears. Andrew Bonner recalled an occasion when he and McShane were talking about what they had preached the previous Sunday. And uh, Bonner's text was Psalm 9, verse 17, and he preached on hell. And uh, he says McShane's immediate response was, were you able to preach it with tenderness? And so... Oh, sinners need to be warned, but they need to be warned with tenderness. They have to be pleaded with, with compassion. Where are we going to find preachers like that? Oh, pray the Lord of the harvest that God will use TBS and other places like that to raise up such men. You and I need to be witnesses. And we need preachers. So we'll pray for preachers. That God will use them to turn this country upside down. Right side up, actually. And rescue the perishing. Because that's why we're here. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, use your word to win souls to Christ. And use your word to stir our souls so that we will Reach out to the lost and use your word in this place and elsewhere throughout the country and the world to bring glory to Jesus as he saves sinners through his word. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. We'll take our hymn.